So let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Matthew 21, and um, we're going to begin with verse 33. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, you may remember, uh, he's having this conversation with them about uh, who gave you this authority, and by what authority do you do these things? And he's continuing on his answer to them um, with another parable. So in verse 33, we start, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, <clears throat> and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the, vi of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you, never re have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, or pardon me, will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Jesus often spoke in parables. Um, a parable is a simple earthly story that has a heavenly meaning or it contains a profound spiritual message. And this parable is no exception. It tells the story of a significant shift in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. As Jesus spoke to the religious leaders, predicting that the kingdom would be taken from them and given to others, he is actually in the process of doing that very thing. So let's take a look at the cast of characters in this parable. First of all, we have a certain landowner. The landowner is who? Is this just going to be a test here? I know you didn't study for it, but this is the test. Who is the landowner? God. Okay. The vine dressers or the tenant farmers who lease the vineyard is who? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I thought you said something. Sorry. The religious leaders. And we could even include the nation of Israel in that, but represented by 
the religious leaders for sure. Um, it, so the landowners sent individual um, servants to the uh, vine dressers. Who are these servants? Prophets. Yeah. They beat one. Um, they produced no fruit. They killed another. They stoned another one to death. And then it says that there were more uh, servants that were sent, so even more numerous than the first three, he sent more prophets to them. The landowner's son, if God is the landowner, the obvious answer to that one is Jesus Christ, God's own son. Other vine dressers will be given the land, uh, the land um, by the, by the uh, landowner. So it's not Israel. And I would suggest that he is referring here uh, to the church. We'll look at that in a, in a little while. Some years ago, Chris and I had seven young children who were growing rapidly. And uh, we also had a growing book business. And we were in a fairly small house. And we were running out of room. And we had books piled from floor to ceiling and out, outside and in the garage as well. And we just didn't have enough room for everybody and everything. So we began a three-year search for a house that would be suitable for our needs. And we looked everywhere. We considered moving to Oregon. One of the properties that we considered was a large house in Forest Grove, which is about 25 miles um, west of Portland. And uh, there's a large, large home sitting on 40 acres. I said, well, that's great. That'll be plenty of room for all of our needs. The 40 acres were planted with hazelnut, sometimes called filbert, but we would call them hazelnut in this country. The owner took, uh, told me that uh, what he did, because he was a doctor, he didn't work the farm. He said, what you can do is you can lease out the acres of uh, hazelnut trees to tenant farmers who do all the work. They do the spraying, the pruning, the harvesting, and then they collect all of the nuts, they sell them at market price, and you get a percentage um, of the fruit of your land. And as long as the tenant farmers were honest and worked hard, I would get paid. If I bought the house I would, I, and did that, I would get paid. Well, I knew nothing about hazelnut farming and hazelnut trees, so I researched and I found that Oregon hazelnut farms were being devastated by what is called eastern filbert blight. And the blight was destroying the trees. It was like a, an infection in the tree that would cut off the life supply to the branches, and of course the tree would produce no fruit. Based on the pattern of spread that I saw online, it was moving in the direction of the 40 acres that we were considering purchasing. And I said, well, that's do that doesn't bode well for this farm. And uh, soon I knew that uh, the, um, the, the farm would succumb to the blight. The trees would be there. They would have leaves, but they would have no fruit. Kind of like what Jesus saw when uh, he, he um, cursed the fig tree a tree full of branches and, and uh, leaves, but, but it would not produce fruit. Um, soon the trees would die themselves just because of the, the blight. I knew nothing about nuts, 
But once I learned about the blight, I knew that I would be a nut to buy the property. And so we didn't buy it, at least buying it, expecting something from it. But God did not plant a blighted vineyard. He planted, uh, he's the landowner. He planted, the Bible tells us, a high quality vine in uh, the land of Canaan. And the Bible describes what he did. In Psalm 80, verse 8 and 9, it says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations, that would be the nations of Canaan, and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. If you remember, God saved Abraham and promised to give him the land of Canaan. That land belonged to God. Years went by. Israel ultimately went into slavery in Egypt, and God likens Israel to a vine that he uprooted from Egypt, took it to Canaan, cleared the land of Canaan, and planted Israel in that land. He cast out the nations, planted the nation of Israel in its place, and it took deep root and filled the land. Well, what kind of a vine was Israel? This is what God says in Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? The vine started with a man of faith, Abraham, who believed in God's promise, and God declared Abraham righteous because he believed God. Some descendants of Abraham were also men of faith, including Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Caleb and others. But Israel as a nation had become corrupt, a wild vine, and did not produce good fruit. We say, well, if that happened, maybe the land wasn't prepared well enough for this noble vine. But it was prepared because it was God who prepared it. He planted Israel in the, in the land. He set a hedge about it, a hedge about his people. In other words, he protected this vine. He protected his people. He built a wine press expecting good wine. He expected the people to produce good fruit. And the good fruit that he expected was uh, justice for the oppressed, righteousness for the helpless, in other words, personal godly character is what he expected to be produced from uh, this vine. He built a tower for shelter and security. And God went to great lengths and expense to make Israel a fruitful vineyard. And we read about this actually in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 7. And you're going to see here how these verses parallel the verses that we just read in um, the Gospel of Matthew. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it, so he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Do you see the similarity between these two stories? The two stories are one. It's the same story. It is clear from Matthew and Isaiah that the Lord is the owner of the vineyard and he is rehearsing Israel's history. He says plainly, for the vineyard is the house of Israel. As a nation, Israel enjoyed tremendous blessings from God, tremendous privileges and God's abundant favor. We see that over and over again. He took these people to be his, his own possession his special nation. Moses said in Deuteronomy 4.34, Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty and outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. 2 Samuel 7.23, it says, And who is like your people? Like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people. Israel had enjoyed favored nation status with God. There was no nation like her. God delivered Israel from Egypt. He cared for her during the wandering years in the wilderness. He entrusted her with his law and the tabernacle was in her midst. God drove out seven nations that were greater than her and planted her in the promised land. She enjoyed a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land filled with good things. She inherited houses that she did not build, fruit from trees she did not plant, and all the good things she needed from the hand of the Lord. God asks Israel, What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Well, he did everything. God showered her with tremendous privileges, more than any nation on the face of the earth. But notice something in in both of these parables, uh, that with privilege comes responsibility. God expected fruit from his vineyard, and he received None. Now, although the parable has to do with Israel, what's the takeaway for ourselves today? Today is July 4th, 2021, and we celebrate the Declaration of Independence. Independence Day is when we celebrate the liberty and the freedom 
from British rule and the blessings and favor that we have received from God as a nation. But there is a greater freedom that Christians can celebrate than July 4th, and that is the freedom from the tyranny of the devil, the liberty we have in Christ, and the blessings that God has poured out upon us uh, as God's children. We are in Christ, and all of the blessings that come with that are, are phenomenal. We should be firing off fireworks. We should be dancing in the streets. We should be celebrating for what God has done for us. It's greater than the independence that uh, we celebrate every July 4th. Think of the favor that God has shown to you personally. With such privileges comes responsibility. And God saved you, and he saved me, and he expects fruit from us. The Bible tells us that we have been saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse says, and we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every single one sitting here as a believer this morning I want to tell you, God has specific works for you to accomplish, even from uh, the time you came to Christ until your old age. There's something he wants you to be doing for him, that you might bear fruit. And um, if God were to send his servants, prophets, uh, to look for fruit in my life or yours, the question is, would he find it? Would he find the fruit he's looking for? It must include what it says in, the, in, in um, Isaiah 5. What he was looking for from Israel was righteousness, righteous living, the right way of living, not impurity, the fruit of the Spirit, and justice. And so he expects us to be actively engaged in the work he prepared for us to do, but that we might ourselves be righteous and just. In Revelation, Jesus, uh, the first few chapters of Revelation, Jesus is walking among his church. And the churches, the seven churches that are represented there, actually represent the church at various periods of time uh, in history. Most commentators say of the church of Laodicea that it represents the church in the last days, the church probably today, which, which reflects our generation. And he says of that church, you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with the eye solved that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The prophets came to Israel and called them to repentance. At times they did repent and they returned to the Lord. Um, but the Lord here in, in Revelation is actually speaking to his church, calling for repentance. 
He's saying, come to me. I'm outside the door of the church knocking. Give me entrance into my own church. God sent the prophets knocking on the vineyard door, as it were, saying, give me fruit. It's my vineyard. Give me fruit. And of his church, give me fruit. He's looking for fruit in our lives. Will he find it in my life? God expected Israel to bear fruit. What kind of fruit? We mentioned it already. Holiness, justice, righteousness, but he didn't find it. Instead, he saw oppression, weeping, idolatry, immorality, and all kinds of other sins. God wanted fruit from his vineyard. And the vine dressers were the religious leaders of Israel. They should have been calling people to righteousness, but they led the way in corruption. God sent prophets in the parable called servants, and he sent them to Israel to call them to repent. Isaiah was one such servant that God sent. And he says this, this is what he said to them, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And so how did they respond? Did they get on their knees and cry out to God for forgiveness and, and, and turn to him in repentance? No, they took Isaiah and they sawed him in two with a saw. Other prophets were sent and rejected. In Hebrews, we actually read an account of this. It says, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chain and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, that's a reference to Isaiah. They were tempted, were slain with the sorn. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Still the Lord sent more prophets, giving Israel every opportunity to repent and bear the fruit of righteousness. And even as we have been looking at uh, John the Baptist in this chapter, he was like the final prophet to Israel, um, apart from the Lord Jesus himself. John called the nation to repentance. John's words must have still been ringing in the ears of the uh, scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who stood there before Jesus that day, um, because we read in Matthew chapter 3, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to John and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How did, Abraham, how did Israel respond to um, God historically? She persecuted all the prophets, hardened her heart against God, and God punished Israel with invading armies and decades of captivity. 
Even as Jesus spoke these words of the parable, uh, the Roman government was governing over Israel. She was enslaved, as it were, to a Gentile government. She was not free. How did the leaders respond to John's message? The same way they had responded historically. They rejected the message of the prophets. How did they respond to Jesus? The same way. In fact, even as he stood there, they were plotting to kill him. And we see that at the end of the chapter. Jesus predicted that just as their forefathers had rejected the prophets and killed them, so the current leaders would uh, reject him and kill him. In verse um, 38 and 39, But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What, what this indicates to me is what I said last week. And that is the Jewish religious leaders knew who Jesus was. They knew. They probably talked about him uh, privately, but as a public declaration, they never accepted him as the Son of God. But the landowner is God. The landowner's Son is the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was standing before the vine dressers of the parable seeking justice and righteousness and instead the innocent Lamb of God uh, would be slain by the religious rulers. In the parable, the landowner said, they will respect my son. But they nailed him to a cross. Although he had not yet been crucified, Jesus, through this parable, lays the blame for the crucifixion at the feet of the current religious leaders of his day, the current vine dressers. In Matthew 23, we read the charges Jesus levels against the religious leaders. Luke, I don't know if you can put that up on the screen for us. Matthew 23, we're going to look at, uh, starting at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have part been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Filled, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how shall you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I sent you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, then on, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar." Assuredly, I say to you that all these things will come upon this generation. And here they were plotting 
the death of Jesus as well. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At this point in the parable, in Matthew, Jesus uh, asks a rhetorical question. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine dressers? And they responded. And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. And in, in answering his question, they condemned themselves. They recognized that the landowner, God, should destroy the current vine dressers, them, and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. Again, I, I would suggest it's the church who would produce fruit. And they're absolutely correct in their assessment. It's about the first time they're right. The religious leaders admit this is the right thing for the landowner to do. And, what, and that is what God did to the nation of Israel. More on that in a minute. Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so the parable shifts from the story of a vineyard to the story of a building and uh, a building site. The building cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. The builders are the religious rulers of the day. When they saw this stone, when they saw Jesus, they rejected him. So in the, in the story of the, the building, they rejected the stone, but he is the stone. He didn't fit their building plans, and they cast him aside as worthless. That rejected stone is the chief cornerstone of the entire building. It's the capstone. It is the topmost stone in the building. They rejected him, but God also highly exalted him and gave him a name, or has given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That stone that was rejected by the builders, by the Jewish leaders, and by the Jews uh, has become the chief cornerstone. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, in verse 43. As he spoke these words, the Lord Jesus was literally setting Israel aside from the most favored nation status that she had enjoyed as God's chosen people. And today, Israel is still set aside, and they are judicially blinded. And in their place, God has raised up the church, primarily made up of Gentile nationals who believe the gospel and are saved 
and bear fruit of righteousness. After the resurrection, the gospel went out. First, it went out to the Jews. And as you see Peter preaching, you see thousands of Jewish people coming to know the Lord on that uh, first day. And so the initial drawing in of people actually were the Jews. When Paul went to a new town or a new city, he said that he brought the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. But there's been a shift in, in that uh, today. Today, the church is made up primarily of Gentiles, Gentiles with a small remnant of Jewish believers. But the kingdom of God has been turned over to a holy nation, God's own people. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 2.9, and he's referring to the church. And the church now has the responsibility to bear fruit in God's vineyard, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of justice. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus went on to say in verse 44, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And so this stone that has been cast aside is on the ground. And uh, that's how we first see this stone, rejected and worthless in the eyes of the Jewish people. But Peter says it, it, it has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. The next time we see the stone, it comes from above. It's going to fall on them. And that is his judgment. And it will fall on his enemies and grind them to powder. But you, dear believer in Jesus Christ, saw the chief cornerstone, that rejected stone, and you believed on him. You believed it was precious, not a rejected stone. You believe that he is precious, Peter says. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There was a shift, and Jesus was declaring that shift at the time he spoke this parable to the Jewish leaders, that it was going to be taken from them, the kingdom of God would be taken from them and given to another. And here Peter describes for us um, what God did. Verse 45, now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. And so Jesus finally answers the question about his authority. He is the Son of God, and they knew full well that he was who he says he is. He, was the, he is the landowner's son. 
He is the chief cornerstone who is now exalted. And the religious leaders knew the parable was about them. And so standing there, they had to make a decision. They're hearing the parable. They know it's about them. They know what's coming. And how did they respond? They sought to lay hands on him. Obviously, to kill him. They feared the people in the response. But by the end of the week, they did kill him. They didn't repent of their plans to crucify him. And all the power that they sought would be taken away from them. And they would be destroyed. How should we proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Well, by rendering to God the fruits that he desires. He desires fruit in their seasons. What is it that the Lord requires of you? What is it that the Lord desires from me? In uh, that same passage in Micah, the verses right before the ones that I read talk about um, what kind of sacrifice should we make to the Lord? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? In other words, if you brought thousands of rams as, a, as offerings to the Lord, would he be pleased with that? That's not really what the Lord is looking for. Well, what if you took 10,000 rivers of oil? Would he be pleased with an offering like that? No, that's not really what he wants. In fact, even in that passage, it talks about, what if I gave my own firstborn <laughs> as an offering? No, that's not really what I'm looking for. What does the Lord require of you? To do what is just? In other words, live in a right way. Love mercy and show it to others. Walk humbly with your God. That's what he's looking for. That's the fruit that God is looking for from me and from you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we uh, are amazed at your teaching. You taught like uh, no other. And Lord, we see that you desire fruit and it's yours by right. You have saved us. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. And Lord, we want to bring praise and honor and glory to your name. And we want to bear fruit that is pleasing in your sight. And so, Lord, we pray that we would indeed bear fruit, that we would do what is just, that we would love mercy, and that we would walk humbly uh, before you. And we pray, Lord, that we would uh, fulfill the works that you have uh, set aside for us to do uh, from the very uh, moment that we were saved. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see what those are and that we might fulfill them with joy. We ask in your name. Amen.